Hey, I'm Steve Fallon. Thanks for listening. This episode of Being Freelance is supported by FreeAgent, the online accounting software that puts you in control of your freelancer finances. To claim your one-month free trial, visit freeagent.com slash beingfreelance. But right now, let's find out what it's like being freelance for Paul Jarvis. I knew how to do my job. Like, I knew how to be a designer. But I didn't know how to run a business. If somebody comes knocking on my door and is like, hey, I need some web work, and I say, I'm busy, that seems like that would be a bad thing to say. But if I say, I'm busy right now because I'm fully booked, because I'm always fully booked, if this seems like a good fit, then I need to lock you into my calendar now or you're going to lose that spot. I think I pretty much landed almost every project that I would explain things in that way because people are like, oh, I don't want to miss out. Oh, he must be good. He's so popular. I don't want busy to be my default state. And I mean, I can weather the busyness and the stress and the overwhelm if it's sometimes. If it's all of the time, if it's my default state, then I don't feel like that's good for my physical health, my mental health, any social health. I don't think that's good for anything. I don't think that's sustainable either. So there is Paul. His email Sunday dispatches has been going out for years and is read by freelancers all around the world. His courses on being a freelancer with Creative Class and many other things, including, for example, being awesome at MailChimp, they are very well known in the freelance community. And he's got a book out this week as well, Company of One. You can find links to what Paul is up to at beingfreelance.com. Also, thank you so much to everybody who already joined the Facebook group. You can come and be part of the Being Freelance community. We've got lots of plans, live Q&As. In fact, I'm hoping that we are going to have Paul Jarvis in the group on a live chat so that you can ask him questions and things as well. Being Freelance Community, search for it on Facebook and then come join in the conversation. So yeah, go take a look. It is all there. But right now, by the way, this is going to be a slightly longer one than normal, but I figure we will let this one run for as long as it needs to. And I hope you enjoy. Let's say hello to freelance writer Paul Jarvis. Hey, Paul. Hey, 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 Steve. Thank you for doing this. Now, as ever, how about we get started hearing how you got started being freelance? Yes, it was actually an accident. I didn't mean to be <laughs> I didn't mean to be a freelancer. So what I mean by that is I was working at an agency at the time in Toronto, uh, Canada, and I liked the clients that we were working with, but I didn't like the way that the agency was run. I didn't like the way that they were treating their clients. So I decided that I wanted to quit and I wanted to go find basically another agency job. I was going to go, I was actually going to go to the library to look up how to write a resume because one, the internet only had about six pages on it back then. And two, I had never actually written a resume, so I didn't know how to do that. But the day after I quit, I started to get calls from the clients of that agency saying like, hey, Paul. We liked working with you more than we liked working with the agency. How about you let us know where you're going to go next in terms of jobs? Because we'd love to take our business there. And after I got a handful of those calls, I was like, hmm, <laughs> like entrepreneur, freelance, light bulb goes off in my head. And I was like, what if I just start working with these people? And that's what I did. So I, I kind of started with a with kind of a, a quite a few clients um, to to work with, kind of by accident, like I said, I think I did end up going to the library that day instead. But I went to the library to look up 
how to start a business in Canada <laughs> instead of how to write a resume. I actually still don't know how to write a resume because I've never actually written one. That's so cool, though. So almost immediately, not only have you become freelance, but you've you actually have clients. Yeah, I 100% just fell into that. I don't even recommend people like there's no way to even like give advice on like do what I did. <laughs> it's just that's kind of how I fell into freelancing. So how did you find it? Was it quite a change? Really, really difficult. <laughs> so what I mean by that is I knew how to do my job. Like I knew how to be a designer. I knew how to do the work that I was getting paid to do. But I didn't know how to run a business because I'd never run a business. I was fresh out of dropping out of university at the time. So I didn't know how to do anything with regards to business. So I, I actually really sucked at it for, <laughs> for a long time. I was awful at running a business. I was a horrible business owner, um, freelancer. But then I learned, I got better at that stuff and then kind of was able to kind of work in equal parts being a freelance designer and being a business owner of a freelancing business. So how did it evolve from there? Basically, I just had to keep learning from my mistakes. So I had a lot of mistakes as far as billing went. I kind of took the mentality of, oh, I'll get paid. Don't need to worry <laughs> about chasing clients for money or following up on invoices or doing anything until I basically got to a point where I realized I'd been working for one client, the biggest client at the time for free for about six months. And I was like, I'm basically telling this client that it's okay to not pay me because they keep not paying me. And then I keep doing the work. So I'm really just showing them that, hey, why, we don't need to pay this guy. He just keeps doing work for free. <laughs> and I was like, I should probably put a stop to that. And I mean, it's definitely a lot harder to put a stop to that if you let it go for longer than it is to like nip it in the bud right away. And so I ended up having to get like a lawyer involved. They took 25% or something. I only got paid probably 25% of what was owed. So it, it turned into basically a real mess for me. But I learned from that. I learned from that <laughs> in the most painful way possible. But I did learn from it, and uh, and I soldiered. I soldiered on. At this point, so was this the late nineties? Yeah, this was still this was still in the nineties. I was still a young young freelancer. Were you like working from home? Were you going into businesses at all? Like, what was it? Um, no, I was definitely working from home. I was actually still at the time when I when I started uh, living with my parents. So I was I was living at home with them, doing this job. I think I had like a computer set up in the basement on like one of my dad's workbench tables, <laughs> and using a computer that I had built from spare parts because I had always been a nerd and still am a nerd. So yeah, I wasn't going into, I wasn't working locally. I mean, all the clients that I was working with when I started that kind of came over from the agency were all based in the States. So I think I went down there maybe once. I was working with um, pro sports. So I, I think I went down for the Super Bowl when it was in Tampa Bay. It's probably the only time I met up with clients in person at that time. I ended up selling my tickets to the Super Bowl because you can get a lot of money for Super Bowl tickets and you can still watch the game. <laughs> so I ended up selling those for was probably $1,000 a ticket. And then I just watched the game from from somebody's house instead. And what was the kind kind of work you were doing? Like, was it was there like a pattern to it or was it for anybody or... 
Um, it, there was definitely like at the time I was mostly like niche down into pro sports. So I was doing websites for, um, well, American pro sports. So I was doing websites for like the NFL, NBA, um, NHL, uh, couple baseball sites and it was very templated it was basically the internet had just started because i'm old we established that and (laughs) all of these athletes were kind of on the very early bandwagon the very smart bandwagon i think of kind of establishing a personal brand and trying to build a name for themselves and actually build additional streams of income for themselves by selling products under their under their own brand. So I was basically skinning e-commerce stores to get technical, I was skinning e-commerce stores for all these athletes and for their, the agents that represented them. Wow. And did you find like, I mean, did you have like loads of work going on? Did you have to like market yourself and go and find other clients or? Not in the beginning. No, I was supremely lucky in that regard. I didn't have to do any of that. I was so busy working and it was basically one after another. And I was so busy doing that. But then when I realized that I didn't really want it was so boring doing the (laughs) like there was no creativity. It had to all this is before like Shopify or any of these actually nice e commerce systems. Like the design had to fall within like this dimension and this dimension for the header picture, this dimension and this dimension for like the photo. Like it was, there was so little creativity in that work. It just felt like I was, I was stamping widgets in a widget factory, (laughs) to be honest. So I didn't have to start figuring out um, like the marketing and sales side of things until I decided that I didn't want to do that anymore. I still wanted to be a freelancer, but I just didn't want to do that tedious monotonous type work plus i'm not really a big sports person so it wasn't even like it would have been so cool if if i was really into professional sports Uh, my sister's the athlete in the family i'm the nerd (laughs) so it wasn't even that good of a fit in terms of like what i was interested in so how long into it was it that you thought no do you know what i want to go after something else right like i did that for quite a while yeah, it was probably two or three years. It was around the time because I moved to the West Coast in 2000. So, and it was probably around the time that I moved to the West Coast that I decided that that wasn't really what I wanted to do. And I was start, people were just starting to contact me at that time too to get work done that wasn't in like the pro sports arena. So I was just like, I should probably kind of think about moving to a different focus yeah so it was like seeing a need that kind of resonated with what you were feeling anyway yeah at the time and still i'm very big on just making connections with people there's so much business advice that is just absolute rubbish (laughs) that at least i think so but i think the advice of like business is all about who you know has just always been true for me so like all of the the work that I've done, regardless of industry, regardless of even the type of work, has all been because I've just like worked at fostering relationships with other people, not because I could get something out of them, but just because they're doing something interesting. I'm probably doing something interesting to them and just kind of going from there. So when I started to move away from athlete work, I just had a network of people who knew that I was a designer and knew that I could like put out quality websites that were just like, Hey, if you ever want to do some different kind of work, then let me know. And that's, it just kind of snowballed from there. And how about people like you? So like you were knowing people who might 
offer you work or you know like people within the business world by the sounds of it were you part of communities of other freelancers no i was not and i mean it's funny now because like fast forward to now and i I teach a course on freelancing and i run a community for freelancers but at the time like to be honest there wasn't like freelancing wasn't really a thing back then Mm. like when i told people that i worked for myself they didn't get it and this is like 20 years ago and nowadays if you say you work for yourself everybody's like oh yeah everybody does that now (laughs) (laughs) but back then it was just like well what do you mean you don't work for a company like what do you do for work (laughs) and people just didn't understand it so there actually was actually kind of lonely there wasn't that many people um doing the type of work that i was doing um on their own like outside of agencies or outside of uh companies clearly as you just mentioned there's a long way to go in this journey so how did it start to evolve then as you changed focus I was really starting to hone in on like what mattered about the type of work that I was doing and thinking about more like it's very difficult to compete as like the best designer. So one, I'm not the best designer. I don't have the talent to be the best designer. Like I'm a pretty good designer, but I'm not the best. And I also don't know how to quantify that. But I also found that the the people that were hiring me and that were happy with my work they wanted work that was great. Like it still has to be at, at a pro level for sure. But like the the difference between like the top 5% of freelancers in an industry and like the 0.001% at the very top, nobody outside of that industry could even, t- even has the skills to be able to tell that. Plus it's probably fairly subjective. So I kind of realized like after I had done that that first bunch of work with with the athlete stuff, I realized that people were hiring me not just because I was a decent designer, but because I was doing the work. And so if I said I was going to do something, I would do it. If I said it was going to be done by a certain time, it would be done by a certain time. If I said it was going to cost a certain amount of money, it would cost a certain amount of money. So I was basically keeping the social contracts with everybody. And it's funny that people kept saying to me like... As I like when I started to all the way now, like I've had so many bad experiences with other freelancers who just disappear or don't do the work or they're hard to get a hold of. And you're different. And I was like, I can, like, I can, this is something I can control. This is something I can compete with. Like, I can be a decent communicator. I can be somebody who keeps my word with clients. And this is the thing above the design work. This is the thing that's bringing them back. This is the thing that's getting them to tell every single person they know to hire me and not Google other designers or like go to Fiverr or Upwork to look for other designers. Like this is the thing that's making me stand out. So this is the thing that I started focusing on. And then I realized like I can apply this to basically any niche. I can apply this to any kind of audience focus and and I can start to see results after working at it for a while. So after that I started working mostly with um big corporations like Mercedes, Microsoft, like Fortune 500, Fortune 100 kind of businesses and I did kind of the same thing. I just I did the work I said I was going to do. I always kept my word and I was very communicative and I really explained why I was doing things or why I was making decisions on top of just trying to do the best that I could with the design work that I was doing. And how did you get in with those companies? Was that just f- through your connections? Or yeah, were personal you- network. Like I can't, <laughs> it would be funny if I just walked in the front door of Microsoft <laughs> and was like, hey, everybody, do you want to hire a freelance web designer? Like I just, I don't think that would work. But like I was continually building my network of people who were interesting and people that worked 
kind of in the same field or people that hire more importantly people that were were hiring designers and just kind of always putting out feelers to see what people were working on the other thing that i found because i was working with a lot of startups at the time and this was just before the first dot-com bubble burst was that if i worked with a, a startup or a team at the time, they would go belly up within about six months because that was basically how it was working, except for a handful of, of startups that didn't. And then the like 10 people that I was working with would go to 10 different companies. And if I if I did a good job for them, for the business, I was really communicative. I did the work they said I was going to do. Then I would have 10 leads because they all went to a different company and all of those 10 companies would also need websites. And so all 10 of those people would contact me for the 10 new websites. So one project would turn into 10 and then 10 would turn into a hundred leads and kind of like that. So I always made sure that I was doing work that people were really, really happy with. And then, cause people, people switch jobs all the time. It's funny. Like I don't switch job. Like I've worked for myself for 20 years and people say that like being a freelancer is risky. And then I see all my friends that work for big companies and they've all switched jobs or been laid off or downsized five or six times by now. And I'm still like two decades later doing the exact same thing from my house in my pajamas. So yeah, it'd be nice if banks understood that fact as well, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah. The, I mean, the... I've had such problems, like even getting things like a mortgage, and it's like, oh, you work for yourself, do you? Well, now we require 50% down payment, not 10%. I'm like, really? Because like, you can see my salary is exactly the same for like over a decade. And it's still like, yeah, banks are just old school. And uh, yeah, silly in that regard, for sure. So what would your website, like your presence online have looked, you know, so talking about, I, I guess, like the year 2000 or whatever that you were just talking about, as these people are starting companies, breaking up companies, moving on and so, so forth. If I went to your website back then, what would I have seen? You would have seen a one page website and it would have said something like, I build websites and then it would say the industry that I was focused on at the time. And then it would have a bulleted list of the projects that I had done and an email address. I think I had a website like that for about 10 or 12 years because my website didn't do anything for me. My, my website didn't generate leads. My networking skills generated leads. People only wanted to go to the website to make sure I wasn't like talking out of my ass for like, oh yeah, I do websites. And then they like Google me or whatever, and they don't find anything. So I'd really just had a website to have like a list of sites that I had done and clients that I had worked with in the past, just to kind of like make it valid that if somebody was like looking me up, they would see like, oh yeah, this is not like anybody couldn't put up a website that would say anything at all. It's the internet after all, but it was just kind of like a validation after a conversation. Like all of my clients came from word of mouth. So my website was really just secondary to, to that. Clearly, you're going into a phase where you're about to work with like loads of big companies. How did you like manage your workload? Like, if I don't know, if Mercedes, for example, or Microsoft knock on my door, it must be tempting to say yes, but I'm already working on something else. Like, how 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 was that phase? Yeah, I mean, this this is where I this is where we start to see Paul the the salesperson and Paul the positioner, because what I found is that. People kind of want what they can't have. And when you're freelancing, I think this is a good thing. I think it's a good thing if you're not immediately available because it creates this kind of air about your expertise where 
if somebody comes knocking on my door and is like, hey, I need some web work, and I say, I'm busy, that seems like that would be a bad thing to say. But if I say, I'm busy right now because I'm fully booked, because I'm always fully booked. But if we talk and it's a good fit for the project, you sign a contract and you give me a down payment. See, I got better with money past the first part. (laughs) Then I can put you in my calendar from a month from now or two months from now. There's homework that you need to do anyways to get ready for the project to make it a success. So if this seems like a good fit, then I need to lock you into my calendar now or you're going to lose that spot. I think I pretty much landed almost every project that I would explain things in that way. Because people are like, oh, I don't want to miss out. And like, oh, he must be good. He's so popular. And it was just like, I, I was popular because I would only take on a certain amount of work all the time. I mean, I could have grown my business and hired other freelancers or started an agency myself and then been able to take on work. But I was like, I don't really want to do that. I'm not interested in that. So what can I do to make my, my business as just a freelancer the most successful, the most profitable without having to to kill myself working like a gazillion hours a week because I said yes to everything. I think every opportunity has a cost associated. We just have to be smart about what we say yes to and have to pay the price for and what we don't say yes to. Mm. It's interesting because you say, you know, you could have hired others and it didn't necessarily need to become an agency. You could have hired other people to work alongside you remotely, just like you were. Was that ever a temptation? Did you dip the toe? Um, pretty sure I did bring on a couple subcontractors. For me, though, I suck at management and delegation. And I actually really enjoy doing the work. I like doing the writing. I like doing the design work. If I was managing designers or writers doing it, then I'd be jealous of them. And it doesn't make sense for a boss to be jealous of his employees. So I never wanted to do that. I just like I wasn't really interested in growth. And I I mean, I still not I mean, I wrote a book (laughs) on the subject, but like, I'm just not really I always wanted to find a way to make the business work for me because it was my business. If I was at the the helm of this business, if I was the one calling the shots, then I wanted to make sure that the business worked for me because running a business is hard. Being a freelancer is hard. Like if I didn't want to make things work for me, it would be easier to just go work for somebody else and just assume that the way things work in their business is the way I'm okay with. So being that I wanted to stay a freelancer and stay working for myself, I was like, how about I just make my business and shape my business around kind of the way that I want it to look. And it's never involved hiring people. I mean, I work with partners on projects and like if a client needed a developer or somebody else to do some work, I would say, Hey, you can hire this person. I've worked with them before. They do great work, hire them separately from me and we'll work together. That way I don't need to manage them, (laughs) but they're available and we can kind of be, the, a bit more than some of our parts working together and collaborating well. So at what point did you start writing? Frankly, you know, like I introduced you as a writer at the beginning. You're very well known for your weekly emails. And as you mentioned, you've got a book. It's out now. When did you start that? Yeah, so it was probably about 10 years in. I realized that if I started to share the things that I know that it could ultimately just help me. Like if I just shared all of the things I know and what I what I noticed in the design world specifically was that when designers were sharing, they were sharing things or writing articles or making videos just for other designers. And I was like, why are you doing Like, why would I do that? Like designers aren't going to hire me 
as clients, they're designed like they're the same skill set as me. Why don't I try to create content or, or write for the people who are hiring web designers? Because if they're reading what I have to say about what makes a good client or what makes a website design a success, or teach them how to be better clients so they get the end result that they want, then if they're reading this and is resonating with them, then maybe they're just going to hire me. <laughs> as in like, oh, I agree with what Paul said about like being a good client or how to hire the right web designer. Well, he seems like the right web designer. So why don't I just hire him? So I start, yeah, it was probably about 10 years ago. And then I, it kind of went from articles that I was writing to the newsletter um, that's kind of morphed into what it is now. Uh, but in the beginning, it was just shared, shared with a much smaller group. And then writing articles and that, and then eventually publishing a few books for people who are looking to make um, online businesses and kind of see success with that. So yeah, it was definitely, I probably should have started writing sooner, to be honest, but I didn't. And I kept telling myself, well, you're not a writer, so you shouldn't be writing. And then I realized, well, that's garbage because all it takes to be a writer is to start writing. So why don't I just do that instead? It was effectively content marketing before anybody was talking about content marketing. Yeah, pretty much. It was me basically figuring out that like, if people were learning from me, then they would assume I was an expert. And if they wanted to hire an expert, then they would want to hire the expert they know. So just keep making content and yeah, like you said, doing content marketing in that way. So how did that change? Was it just the reaction that you got from your audience? Yeah, I mean... I kind of after I guess probably a year or two of writing, I was like, this is interesting to me. And at the time I had been designing and doing client work for a lot of years. So I was like, what if my job changes a little bit? And I was like, well, maybe I should start to think about like writing as a as a career. And I still want to keep working for myself. That's never changed. I don't even think I'm employable at this point in my life. And the number of visible tattoos I have or the surly attitude that I maintain. But I was like, what if I, what if I move from being a designer to a writer? Like, what would that look like? And so I decided if I'm going to do this as more of a, jo- more of a job that I want than a hobby that I want to pursue, I was like, okay, I'm going to keep track of uh, my income separate. So my design income separate from my writing and product income. And if my writing income begins to make more than my design income in less amount of time, then that seems like a viable career, like slight shift for me. So that's kind of what I worked towards in the beginning. It took about two and a half years to get there, but that's kind of the the plan that I started in with. Cool. And was that like weekly articles? you know, like weekly consistent. Yeah, basically writing articles about once a week. This is kind of, and this is probably now about six or seven years ago. So it's kind of around the start of the Sunday dispatches. And it was writing weekly articles as well as at the time I was trying to grow my reach as a domain expert in whatever it is I'm an expert in. (laughs) And so I was trying to write articles for uh, publications because I realized that like, there's a potential audience out there for me. They just don't know who I am yet, but they're already spending time on the internet. So I need to go to them in the beginning. I need to go find where they're hanging out and start to show up on their radar in those places. And so I was like basically writing for any publication that would have me being um, like just making stuff for other places so that they would see it and then come to me, which luckily that happened. And then 
yeah, I started to write books and those started to sell well. And then I started to make courses and those started to do well as well. And then I started to make software. So it all kind of started from the writing place though. And that's why I said in the beginning, you were like, how should I introduce you? And I was like, writer, because <laughs> that's basically what takes up the bulk of my day. Like regardless of the type of work I'm doing now, it's mostly writing. Even if it's making software, it's still mostly writing and then a bit of development and still a, quite a bit of design. Was it quite a shift when you decided to make your first course? Yeah, like, I mean, it was it was honestly pretty tough because I was like, I, I kept thinking that I was being an idiot because I was kind of at the top of my game uh, as a freelance designer. And I was basically saying like, what if I just stop doing this? And it's like, when you're doing well and your business is making money and you have like a client backlog and you're like, maybe, I, maybe I'm going to stop doing what's working. It also is probably going to go through your head unless you're filled with ego completely that maybe this isn't the right idea because you're stopping doing something that's obviously working very well. So I definitely had a lot of those thoughts. But I also knew that the writing was actually going fairly well. The the, the things that I was writing were doing well and being well received and and definitely generating some income. Plus, I loved my clients. Like at the time of of kind of winding that down, I was only working with people that I really, really liked working with that were really smart, that were really actually great online business owners as well. So I actually learned a lot from the people that I was working with. And so, yeah, it just kind of kept it kept going from there. And the the courses were just kind of like a next progression from from the writing books was there like a tipping point because it must have been like that moment where you had zero email subscribers like zero audience like can you remember like a a point where it felt like it was taking off there wasn't even one point i think that it was like a a a two and a half year run to being an overnight success (laughs) at (laughs) writing where it was just it was so incremental it was like i looked at um in MailChimp the other day. And like the first email that I sent out to the Sunday dispatches was to 69 people. Then the next week it was like 72. And then the next week it might've been a hundred. And then for a couple years, it was just like slow, like every week it was like a hundred more, 200 more, sometimes four or 500 more. And it just kept slowly growing and everything I did made a little dent in that every product I released made a bit more money than the last one. It was just such a slow, slow build that there wasn't even one there wasn't one tipping point it was just one day I was like "Mm, I'm making more doing this than I am doing my design work so maybe this client that I'm working with now is my last client Hmm. and I was like maybe I can do this and then just on a whim I guess I probably emailed them and was like hey this is like this is the last part because most of the time when I was working with clients they would never leave in the best (laughs) in the best possible way where I would work with somebody and I would do a website for them and then they would like that work. So they'd hire me again. There's a few clients that I did probably a dozen, maybe 15 projects with where it just kept going or like as they had new business or as their business grew, they just needed more stuff. So I would do, do more projects with them. So it was really tough to let those clients go. But eventually I just told them one by one from with a little tear in my eye that like, Hey, I'm, I'm no longer be I'm no longer going to be doing this. Here's somebody I think you could probably hire um instead of me who's just as awesome or more awesome at the work. 
And I'm sorry to have to part ways, but I'm, yeah, I'm pursuing something different now. And they were all understandable. Actually, when I started writing books, the there's three or four clients that I was working with that were like my biggest promoters. Like they already had big audiences and they promoted my books and they actually really helped the, the initial traction of some of the, some of the like paid books that I had written take off, which I was really grateful and thankful for. And when it came to making the courses, like how did that, feel for you like workload wise like we've had a few people on who have made courses the the classic in quotation marks passive income uh which really can't be how (laughs) how did you find that change in in your work yeah i mean i really think passive income is just separation of work and revenue where it's not really passive you're just doing the work beforehand to make the money in the future So I, with the products and with the writing stuff, I went very slowly. So the first book that I wrote cost me $0 because at the time, well, I I just like weird experiments for no reason. Well, for not much reason. So at the time of writing my first book, I was not spending any money that year other than gas and groceries and like obviously rent, but I wasn't spending money on anything. So I, and it was a cookbook and all of my cutlery and plates are ugly because I don't care (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what my plates and colors look like. So I traded for editing work. My buddy was a pastry chef at a five-star restaurant in the town that I live. So I, he let me borrow a bunch of stuff. I traded the photographer um, food for taking all of the photos. I'm like, hey, you can eat all the things you take pictures of. Please, please, please. <laughs> and so she she did that. And so I basically tried to build it as slowly as possible where the first book didn't take a whole lot of time didn't take any money. I think I registered a domain name. So I guess it cost me $12. And then that started to make money. So I started to invest a little bit more money and a little bit more time in the next book. And by the time I got to courses, which was probably three books in, my writing was making a decent amount of money. So I could I could spend about three or four months building something that was generating zero money in the hopes that it would generate money in the future. And I only did that because I knew that the books were doing all right. And I was just like slowly, progressively growing, growing the income, growing the the fan base and all of that. And so when I made my first course, which was creative class, I knew that I could spend a bit more time working on it. And it's like, I'm lucky too, that the skill set that I have, like it's easy for me to build a website because this is what I've done for 20 years. So I know how to design a course. I know how to write a course because I've been writing for a while. I figured out how to do video in the easiest way possible by just hitting record and keynote on my Mac. So <laughs> that part was actually pretty straightforward. And I knew how to build payment systems because I'd been building them and they got a lot easier since the mid 90s. So it was all just like, I, I feel like courses for me was just like a combination of all of the skills that I've been working on for, for years past. Yeah. From that one course, Creative Class, which still, you know, exists, albeit in different iterations today as well. How many more courses did you like? How long would you spend? And would you then go right on to the next thing? Like how <laughs> or, or would a course take, I don't know, like lots of tending like a garden? Yeah. They definitely require work. And for me, it's mostly like I'm a big systems and processes nerd. So I like to have onboarding of a course dialed in completely. So if somebody buys a course, I answer the questions they might have before they ask them. And I like to make it so it's easy to progress through the lesson. So I want all of the course to feel like a finished piece of software that's easy to use. So 
the opposite of Microsoft Word or something like that, <laughs> where I don't want to have to work on helping people with the same problems, because I feel like that's a fault of mine if that happens. If people have issues that are unique to them, then I'm happy to help. That's my job as a, as a course creator, as a teacher, to, to help people like that. But I want to answer or pre-answer all the questions beforehand. So I work really hard at that. So I feel like the, the work that I have to do as a, as a course runner is to answer specific questions. Like typically when my course is open, the, the bulk of my work, because everything's automated now, is just answering emails from people. And just like if somebody's like, if this is this course right or wrong for me? I'm going to spend some time thinking about, well, is this course actually right or wrong for them? And sometimes I'm going to say it's not. Sometimes I'm going to say it is. Or even answering questions. That My favorite question that I ever got, I'm never going to forget it. And it's the story that I always tell when people um, ask about this, is in the creative class and in kind of what I talk about with freelancing, what you and I have talked about today, um, word of mouth and referrals are such a huge part of what I teach and what I feel is very important for freelancers. And so one time when creative class had just opened, I got an email from a lady who was like, this course seems really good. This seems to really resonate with how I want to run my business. She's like, but you talk a lot about word of mouth and referrals. And she's like, my job is a death doula. So if I do my job correctly, my client is dead at the end of our work together. She's like, I cannot get a word. I cannot get a word of mouth recommendation because my client has passed on. She's like, is this course right for me? And I'm like, there's no sales copy that I could write <laughs> that could address this specific issue that this lady had. I mean, I didn't even know that this was a th like death doula is a thing. I didn't even know that this existed as like a freelance job even. <laughs> so I feel like, like that's part of the non-passive thing. Like I want to be available to people who are interested in my course. I've also found too that a lot of times the, the pre-sales questions are more to see that I care enough about answering the question and that there's a human on the other side of this digital transaction than anything else. Mm. Like people ask me questions because they want to see how, how long it takes me to answer, how if I'm just sloughing the answer off or if I'm just putting time into the answer before they make a purchase. Because I think a lot of times all of these courses can be like really automated and, and there can be no like human interaction. So I feel like that's part of my job as well as tending the garden of existing students. There's a community for all of my courses. So I spend a bit of time every day in the, in the chat and if people have questions, want to answer them. If people have topics, I want to weigh in. If people are, are sharing with each other, I want to encourage them and, and that sort of thing. You mentioned products earlier as well. So you've got courses, you've got products. Like, have you spent time creating things and then eventually ended up like switching something off, like killing it. Oh yeah, all the time. Probably killed off more products than I currently sell because if something's not working, I don't want to keep doing it. <laughs> I don't want to keep doing something if it's not working. Like I'm obviously going to give it a try and I'm going to try to make it work and I'm going to try to, especially with products, try to reposition them because maybe I got the, the sales copy or the positioning wrong, but after a certain amount of time, like running a business is hard enough. I don't want, I want to take off things that don't have to be hard off of my plate. So if a product isn't doing well, or if a product, even after a ton of work on my end, just isn't selling where it needs to be selling, then yeah, I'm going to kill it off. I killed off 
courses. I've killed off software products. I've killed off podcasts. <laughs> like you name the type of product, I've probably killed. I've probably killed off at least one of those. And it ends up feeling better afterwards. Oh yeah, it's scary as hell. <laughs> the second before you're like, should I kill this off? Should this, should this stop existing? And then as soon as you do, you're just like, ah, <laughs> so nice. And then you open up space to work on another thing that could have the potential to do much better, and which I think is a good thing. Yeah. You you mentioned podcasts. When did you get into that and how did that feel for you? Probably. I think my first show was Invisible Office Hours with Jason Zook. Um, it was tough. Like he basically had to convince me. Like I love podcasting now, but I'm also introverted and my preferred means of communication is written. <laughs> so he really had to push me. And this is around when podcasting was really starting to take off. He's like, oh, we should have it. Like we talk on Skype all the time and we're re- we're ridiculously funny. <laughs> so other people would totally love to listen to us. And I was like, I don't know. And he's like, dude, we're doing a podcast. I was like, okay. And then it did do well. And then I was like, okay, yeah, I probably shouldn't have pushed so hard against this. And since then, I think I've had... One, two, three, four, or five podcasts since then. And I think I have two active ones now. So, yeah, it started out tough because I don't like, like, talking isn't my default preferred state of communication. But as I've done more of it, I've started to realize that, like, hey, this is actually a, a, a mode of communication that my audience really likes. So, my business exists to serve them in exchange for money and value so why not why not do this why not do the things that they like if it's not if it's not awful for me to do or it doesn't go against any like morals or ethics to do it but i do think that it is a it is a pretty good medium and i mean even now like i really like it and like i enjoy i just recorded the audiobook for company of one which was hours and hours in a studio talking and i mean it was definitely exhausting i'm not going to lie but it was still like I really enjoyed giving voice to to the book that I written. Company of One, you, you've spoken about the fact that you didn't want to grow mm-hmm. as a business. The the point of the book and the thesis of the book is is not that growth is bad, but is that growth should be considered. And I think for myself, for somebody who I've admitted is very bad at managing and who likes doing the stuff. It growth doesn't make sense for me. If I was starting Airbnb and I had one property on it, I don't think it would be a success because I would need more than one property on it to, to build a marketplace where people can book other people's houses around the world. So I think growth makes sense in a lot of times, but growth also doesn't make sense in a lot of times. And it was just a message that I had felt to my core was smart for me to do, but nobody else was talking about it. So I was like, what if I can write a book to share with people who feel the same as I do? Because everybody else is talking about the other side all the time. You can go to any event, read any article in any um, business publication about why growth is good and why growth is basically the thing you're supposed to do if you succeed in business. And I was like, there's probably people like me. And then I started to write articles about it for my mailing list about why I don't like growth. And I was like inundated with people who were like, I thought I was the only one who felt this way. And I was like, yes. (laughs) and there's a book here one thing i wanted to touch upon uh as i do with pretty much everybody i think i speak to is the whole work-life balance of things Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's always a struggle (laughs) to be honest like 
when we when we work for ourselves, we know that like if we're not working, we're not making money. So maybe we should keep working to make more money. But then there's a, there's a certain like we're not machines. Like we're not like our bodies aren't built to sit. Especially for most freelancers, aren't built to sit at a desk staring at a at a monitor all day. Like I feel like I can be more productive if I go to the gym or if I eat well or if I get eight hours of sleep a night. And these things seem counterintuitive but they're not like they're actually good for productivity. There's a study done by, I think it was Pew um, research. uh, And this is only about Americans. So it may or may not apply to the rest of the world. I don't know, (laughs) but where they found that productivity kind of peaks at about 50 hours maximum a week. And if you work more than that, you're basically just sitting there not being productive. And I also don't even think that number of hours is a mark of productivity. I think if you're truly productive, you're working less and not more. I think that this whole idea in society that like busyness is a badge of honor, that like sleeping on your couch like Elon Musk at his office is a badge of honor is kind of misguided where I feel like I don't want to be punished for for getting my work done quickly. I want to be rewarded for that. So I want to build a business around that. And I mean, sure, there's some times when I'm busy. Like my book just launched. I am busy right now because a book that I've been working on for years just came out. But in a month, I'm not going to be busy. And I I don't want busy to be my default state. And I mean, I can weather the busyness and the stress and the overwhelm if it's sometimes. If it's all of the time, if it's my default state, then I don't feel like that's good for my physical health, my mental health, any social health. I don't think that's good for anything. I don't think that's sustainable either. Like I've worked for myself for 20 years. I want to keep working for myself for another 20 years. And that's not going to happen if I'm like burning the candle at both ends or trying to do 16 hour days. Like I want to do three or four hours of like creative work and then maybe an hour or two of admin work and be done. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's perfect for me. Some days aren't like that. Some days definitely stressful longer, but most days are pretty much that. Nice, yeah. You you spoke there about the future. So, I mean, because you've already established that you're really old. <laughs> <laughs> old man interview. Another 20 years. But, I've you know, I've, I've heard you on podcasts before on probably Invisible Office Hours, like talking about investing, for example. Mm-hmm. Like, was there a point when you started thinking about your longer-term future? Yeah, I mean, so in terms of long-term goals, I have none. Like, I'm I'm really bad at planning specifics for the future but I'm also stress adverse (laughs) so like I've been putting money into investments and just like index funds like I don't invest in the stock market I don't understand the stock market why would I why would I put money into something I don't understand and like playing the lottery is easier and it pretty much gives you the same results but investing in passive income things like uh, an index fund like a low-cost index fund which is paying off typically above inflation every year. I've I've kind of always done that because I've always felt like, well, what if everything stops tomorrow for me? And I mean, I put things in place so that doesn't happen. And I have like liquid assets in case I have lean months, but I've always invested a lot. Um, And it's like in my 20s, I was pretty much stupid in every other aspect of my life. But (laughs) when it came to investing or it came, came to like savings, I was always a squirrel. Like I always figured like, I don't know what the future looks like. So why not save for that? Why not live below my means if possible? And like kind of the not spending anything for a year was was an experiment in that. Like, could I live with less? And there's definitely some things I couldn't live with. One time I did, 
I think we had no furniture for six months because we were trying to de- determine exactly what furniture was required and what wasn't. My back hurt after a month. And I was like, we need a couch and a bed. Like, past that, I don't care. But like, we need a couch. We can't sleep on a blow up mattress. Like, this is ridiculous. So we changed. But like, I always try to live, like, even as a freelancer, like, our incomes can be very different month to month. But I've always kind of looked at, okay, what's the average for 12 months? What do I need to pay myself? That's the minimum amount to cover my expenses each month. And then that's my salary. And like, I paid myself a salary. For as long as I can remember, I don't remember when I started paying myself a salary as a freelancer, but it's been at least 10, 15 years at, at least where I've had a set salary where I've known like, this is how much I need to live off of. I, I can live with the amount that I have. I don't need a lavish or a luxurious lifestyle in all regards. Certainly some things I spend money on, which I don't have to, but it makes me happy. So why the hell not? But like, if I need to spend less on my life, I need to make less. So I'm stressed less because I hit profitability every month a lot sooner. And then everything else, like I put into savings and I say, like, I could, like, I could be like uh, Mr. Money Mustache and try to live off of like 30K a year and, and live in the wood. I don't even know where he lives now, but like, I could try to do that now and I could probably do that, but I'm not really interested <laughs> In that, because that's somebody else's version of success. That's somebody else's version of a life that they want. It's not necessarily what I want. So I want to try to figure out what what I want. But yeah, savings have always, long answer to a short question. Savings have always been ridiculously (laughs) important to me because I never know what's coming next or what could happen. That's good. Um, Now, Paul, I always do this thing where I ask for three facts about yourself to make two true, one a lie. And let me figure out the lie. What do you have for me? I feel like this is going to stump you only, only by virtue of the fact that like, you don't know me in real life. I just feel, I feel, and I've put a lot of thought, <laughs> probably put way too much thought into this, but, I, but I think I have a good one. So I'm going to tell you three things um, that I do or don't do in my community. Because these are things like everything else about me, you can easily Google at this point. So I, I feel like I could, I feel like I could really stump you. So three things about what I do in my community, because I think um, doing things in our communities are important, especially when we work online and our community is digital. I think still the the most effect we can have is is where we locally live. So I am a fire commissioner. I am a police commissioner. And I am a block watch captain. Which of those is untrue, Mr. Colombo? Fire commissioner, police commissioner. What was the last one? A block? Block watch captain. Wow. Now, I don't know what that is. Is that like a neighborhood watch type thing? Yeah, is that like it's a, neighborhood watch completely. You have that right. A block watch captain. Do you get a badge? Like, what does a block watch captain have to do? As a block watch captain, I, I communicate on the conduit between the, the local police and the community. So if there's something the community should be aware of, I share that from the coppers to the community there's something in the community that the cops should know i share that with them Hmm. and there's signs there's there's no badge i wish there was a badge and what does a fire commissioner do and do you get a uniform a fire commissioner keeps basically the budget on track for the local fire department and they basically make decisions like hmm should the fire department get a new fire engine should they get new uniforms should they build a new fire hall and i'm taking it that a police commissioner does the same thing for the police yes except less fire trucks and more police squad cars oh my god (laughs) two of these are true 
That's amazing. I, um, I told you, I, I really wanted to come up with something that was ridiculously impossible for you to answer. Uh, but like, do you get elected as one of those, be it fire or police commissioner? I take it all, all three are, are, are election based. Yes. They're election, all election based. Yes. I'm not a very good politician, and two of these are true. So it's actually kind of funny. Wow. And then, <laughs> like, when you're in charge of the basically the police budgets and telling them what they should spend money on. Are you like tempted, you know, like more, I don't know, a little bit more glitter, a little bit more like, do you? All the cops get jags. <laughs> yeah, like the last time I was in England, there were, and this is a long time ago, but there were cops driving jaguars on the highways. This was ages ago. This might have been in the 80s. <laughs> yeah, I, say, I think you've just been watching Inspector Morse. <laughs> Did it really happen? Okay, listen. Um... Fire Commissioner, Police Commissioner, Block Watch Captain. I'm going to say, <laughs> I have no idea. You are a Block, okay, you definitely are a Block Watch Captain, I'm going to say. I reckon you started as a Block Watch Captain and you got a taste for it. So where did you go next? Police or fire? Police or fire? You are not a Police Commissioner. You're correct. I was trying to remember yes. if I mentioned that my wife was a firefighter um, during this call or no, not. No, you I don't didn't. Know if, I don't think I did. <laughs> oh, my God. You really are in charge of... Wow. Did, did they at least give you like a fire fire uniform or something? Or No, but I help out with getting the shirts printed because I have a background in design. So they let, <laughs> me, ha they let me have a T-shirt that says the fire department on it. It's not official. <laughs> So I do have fire plates on my vehicles, but that's only because my wife is an actual firefighter. So <laughs> you guessed it. I can't believe you guessed it. No, I just didn't believe they put you in charge of the police. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't blame them for not putting me in charge of that. Now, if you could tell your younger self one thing about being freelance, what would that be? Yeah, I think it. I think it's that you're in charge. So you can make the rules of, of how you want your business to look. And obviously it needs to be profitable. It needs to be valuable. It needs to be helpful. But you don't have to run or start a business that looks like somebody else's business to make it legitimate. Like by virtue of you existing as a business and profiting from it, your business can look however it needs to look. <laughs> I struggled with that in the beginning. And then now I'm like, I don't know why I just didn't see this sooner. Did you always feel like a business because because for me like that the word like i remember when when i first went freelance my wife saying oh yeah steve's starting his own business and i was like no nah, i'm not i'm like nah yeah. but actually after a while you start to realize actually that that is it that how was that for you yeah i think i think it's funny especially in like the creative world like as designers writers um photographers that kind of thing we all feel like ooh, business yucky <laughs> and then when we work for ourselves we're like oh it's not a real business but it kind of is like we need to make a profit. We need to be valuable to the people we serve. Our business is about serving others for money. And so we need to be, we need to do our taxes. Like all of the things that a business does, every single freelancer has to do to make a living doing it. So I think that in thinking that, ooh, business is yucky, we probably just think that it's yucky in the way that we see other businesses work. And that's why we freelance in the first place. And so if we make our business and we, we run it in a non-yucky way, it's actually pretty cool. It's actually kind of fun to run a, a business on your own. 
Paul, thank you so much. Go to beingfreelance.com. There are links through to everything that Paul is up to. And of course, check out his book, Company of One, as well. There's a link through to that. Check out his various courses and the podcasts and stuff. All the links that you could possibly need are at being freelance.com. Paul, it's been really good chat to you, especially because when I first went freelance and I I dug it out earlier on, I remember a friend of mine sent me an an email. It was, you are not a large corporation. (laughs) I remember that email. Yeah. I still have Mm -hmm. the email stuck away in a folder. Yeah. Um, it's It's still on my website too. Yeah, it's on the website. So I'll put a link to that. But yeah, it really spoke to me at the time. Yeah, it's been cool watching the way that you've evolved over the past few years while I have been as well. So thank you so much for chatting. Go to beingfreelance.com and go and see what Paul is up to because you won't be disappointed. Paul, thanks so much and all the best with the book and all the best being freelance. Yeah, thanks, Steve. I appreciate it. This is such a great talk. 